Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Blinky, CEO and president of Entropy, a carbon capture company that's raised $300 million in funding. Michael, thanks for chatting with me today. Glad to be here, Brett. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so to kick things off, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? You bet. So my background, I'm an engineer, and for most of my career, I've lived in Calgary, Canada. Spent most of my years in the energy space, including uh, low-carbon natural gas, and over the sort of last 25 to 28 years, started to move towards clean tech, recognizing that the world has evolved pretty quickly here. So started up a company called Entropy about four years ago to focus entirely on energy transition and specifically on carbon capture and storage. And in a small part, because that really is sort of the translation of lots of the traditional energy technologies translate nicely into carbon capture. Our group of people is probably the right group of people to be able to do this type of stuff at a, at a reasonable price. Would 10-year-old Michael be surprised that you ended up being president, CEO, and founder of a company? Yeah, that's, 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 a, pretty, that's a pretty high likelihood that 10-year-old me would be surprised. That I think, you know, growing up, we all have pictures of being firemen or professional athletes or maybe pilots, stuff like that. I was no different. Uh, I think if I were to try and guess what I, where I might have ended up, it might have been more in the medical space, uh, coming from a family with a doctor father and a nurse mother. But realistically... Being from Calgary, I happened to be in a space where there was a huge demand for educated individuals right when I was graduating from college. And there's so much opportunity that really this was kind of almost impossible. It's like a force that was difficult to resist being pulled further and further into industry where opportunity was so plentiful. And so I'd say that, that me, me ending up as a CEO was probably more of a serendipitous result than an actual plan. Hmm. Yeah, opportunity-based. Makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that's the case for a lot of the founders that we've had on as well. I think uh, just for what it's worth, I think when you are a kid, you do think about doing something with purpose, right? Something you love. And I think that in some cases, certainly in my case, in order to feel like I was doing something with purpose, it ended up requiring me stepping out on my own and, and trying to build something organically, as opposed to just following the path that was always put funny in the industries that are, that are always growing. And how have you seen the clean tech space evolve over the last couple of years? Because it sounds like you were there early before it was cool. <laughs> that's, that's one way to put it. You know, I think that one of the things that led us to get towards clean tech or led me and the team uh, into clean tech early was the fact that we were in a mature industry. And so when you think about natural gas, whether it's low carbon or not, natural gas is a very mature industry. It's 150 years old, probably. And as you get more mature, there's a lot less excitement. There's a lot less ability to do something that's differentiated. And so we started to look and think, well, what comes next? What additional work can we do? And how can we apply, you know, all the skills you build up over the years to do something new that's looking forward instead of just capitalizing on opportunities that were backwards looking. And so that really is what ended up driving us into the transition space early. And we, frankly, we looked at all sorts of stuff in the transition space. I don't think there's a one thing that made us go that direction so much as how do we together create a business that's meaningful? And that sort of purpose that we can't, came across was it has to be something that's very real, measurable, not something that's a temporary uh, speculative play, 
as you sort through all the different energy transitions, especially if you look at the ones that are truly scalable on a global level, carbon capture rose right at the top from our perspective. And, and we zeroed in on that probably within the first six months of, of all the investigation and, and really started to get very, very focused on it about three, three and a half years ago. And a couple of questions that we like to ask, really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and as a leader. First one is what founder or CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? That kind of question in different forms comes up pretty frequently, right? Like, I mean, how do you know what model to, to follow or how do you create a brand new model? And I think that my answer three years ago would have been very different or my answer 10 years ago would have been very, very different than it is now. I think that the safe answer right now, and you probably get this answer all the time, it's probably Elon Musk. And I think the reason why it's Musk is because I think he's applied the engineering, kind of the, how do we take raw materials and turn them into value? That mentality, as an engineer, that mentality really works for me. I don't think that he's perfect. He makes a lot of mistakes along the way. And there's been times where I was quite critical of some of his behaviors. But I love the fact that by taking his own wealth and putting it back on the table, starting up new ideas, new companies that he was able to calculate should be investable and should be growable and should be very valuable. And then doing all the hard work and using incredible brain power to overcome those, those challenges. To me, that's the mark of what should entitle you to great success. And we would take a similar, I mean, <laughs> take a similar mentality around value anyways. The right to be rewarded with financial gains by society is only earned if you create something of great value. And so I think that that's the Musk model that we would follow. And, and we're hoping to try and do that uh, you know, pretty much every day. Yeah, I think when people look at Musk and they focus on these, you know, kind of small things like the dumb tweets he sends or dumb things that he says, I feel like they're just insane and they're missing the point. Like there's so much good you can learn from Musk and so much that he's achieved, like focusing on like the dumb tweets. It's just insane to not look at him and you think, OK, can I just like learn a little bit from him? To me, that's, uh, that's an obvious no brainer to look at Musk and you know, look for things to learn because there's a lot to learn. I agree with you. And you, you highlighted an important point, which is. He's, he makes mistakes on a pretty regular basis. And the part that's most impressive is that the mistakes that he makes, they don't tend to be fatal, fatal flaws. You know, there's one mistake that he made, which was a big mistake. And that was, of course, the price that he agreed to buy Twitter at, which I think he re realized very quickly that it was overpriced as the market started to come off, you know, back to year or whatever. But the other mistakes that he's made tend to be mistakes about how he communicates what he says, judgments that he makes without necessarily taking the time to think through it. And it, one of my favorite quotes is the old, there's an old quote, maybe I can, maybe Brett, you can tell me if you know the quote or where it comes from, but the quote is, with great power comes great responsibility. You know where that comes from? I don't know where it comes from. I've, I've heard that many times though. That's Uncle Tom for Spider-Man. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I think that Musk probably doesn't take himself quite as seriously, or at least he hasn't always taken himself as seriously as the rest of the world takes him. And he makes certain comments uh, and he perhaps doesn't remember the power that every one of his words carries. And so when he makes a mistake in his comments that has a, a powerful response, that's where he will butt up against the limits. And I think as a as someone that might be on the spectrum, you really can't correct your behaviors until you find a limit. That hard feedback is necessary. The soft feedback you get doesn't seem to work very well. So, I mean, those mistakes come. And then if you focus on those, you can choose to not like them. But boy, what he's accomplished across his whole career has been just fun to watch. It's crazy too how he's you know really still just getting started. I went to the the Warren Buffett event uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I was thinking, man, these guys are like ninety six years old. Unfortunately, they are going to die soon. And you look at someone like Musk, who I think he's you know early fifties. He still has a long time to go, and you know he's really really just getting started, which got me excited thinking about that. That we're going to hopefully have 
a lot more Musk innovations in the coming decades. Yeah, we can all hope, right? <laughs> we can yeah. certainly hope. <laughs> we can hope. What about books? And and the way I like to frame this question is that uh, we call it a, a quake book. I shouldn't say we, I stole that from, from someone else, but they call it a quake book. So it's a, a book that just rocks you to your core and, and really influences how you think about the world. Do any books like that come to mind for you? Well, I mean, that's a big question and it's tough to pick one book, but, and it depends on the context too, but I think as a general rule, I would probably go to Thinking Fast and Slow, which is uh, by Daniel Oneman. And it's a heck of a, it's a great book. It's about psychology and in no small part, it's about the philosophy of decision-making and the actual, the biases we have, mistakes that most people make when they make decisions, the way you weigh things poorly. And I think that in life, it's a great book for anyone. It's a great book for people that are trying to make important decisions. And it's also, and then one of the hard parts is that it's somewhat academic. It's written from the perspective of a researcher and a, a publisher. So himself, you know, so Kahneman and his former, now past research partner, Amos Tversky, kind of created a whole new field called decision theory. And I think decision theory is probably the one piece of being a professional that people don't really think about much or don't, don't study as much necessarily. But what those two guys did is they started to sort of tear apart the way people make decisions and refine and clarify the language around that. And the title itself, thinking fast and slow, refers to the two different sort of neurological pathways that you use while you're making decisions. And some are intuitive and some are logical. And the fast ones are intuitive, the slow ones are logical. And a balance of the two is important. So all that to say, that book is fantastic. Yeah, I think it helps with philosophical decisions, decisions that don't have a clear answer. It helps you manage risk. And by the way, I'll also mention is a book called The Undoing Project. I think it's Michael Lewis. And it's essentially the same book, except Michael Lewis, or the author of The Undoing Project, was a much better storyteller. So you read The Undoing Project, it's about Tversky and Kahneman, it's about their work, about the smartest sort of learnings from their work and their Nobel Prize for, I think it's for economics. That book is actually easier to read and it's more fun. It just doesn't go into quite as much depth on how to think about decision theory. So you can read both as like a companion series and they're quite complimentary. Nice. I've read the first one. I haven't read the second one, so I'll add to my list now. Oh man. Yeah. Like The Undoing Project is the one that you should start with because it's, uh, it gets you hooked and then and then you can dive, you know, a little bit deeper into the details on uh, thinking fast and slow. Amazing. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. Now let's switch gears and let's dive a bit deeper into the company. So just for those listening who maybe aren't totally clear on the definition, could you define carbon capture for us and what that means? Yeah, sure. That's a lengthy discussion. I'll try and capture it really quickly. Basically, carbon capture is simply taking carbon dioxide molecules that would otherwise be in the atmosphere and putting them into a permanent storage location. So, well, I mean, the capture piece, of course, is preventing them from being in the atmosphere. Uh, what you do with it could be either storage, sequestration, or utilization. And broadly speaking, the part that we're focused on is storage, uh, where it's permanently put away. But the whole thing would be called CCUS, carbon capture, utilization, storage. The more difficult part is the capture piece. The question around capture takes a lot of definition. Anything that is captured in CO2, of course, fits in that space. But as you divide it down into smaller elements, there are many different sort of challenges. There's some easy ones where you're simply taking a pure carbon dioxide stream, which happens sometimes from different industries, and you compress that for storage. That's pretty cheap, not that hard. In fact, it happens quite frequently around the world. There's about 40 of those projects around the world that are running, have been running for a number of years. And then there's the post-combustion style of carbon capture. And that's quite a bit more complicated, quite a bit more expensive. 
because post-combustion is where you, you know, if, anytime you burn a fuel, the thermodynamic reaction is essentially you take a carbon-based fuel, you ignite it, you mix it with oxygen, and the product is heat and carbon dioxide plus water vapor. So you end up with a stream of carbon dioxide. Problem is, it's like a low concentration stream. So you have between, let's say, 4% and 10% of the exhaust gases that come out of that engine or boiler or whatever else it is. 4 to 10% is carbon dioxide. And because the volume of that emission stream is massive, and because you can't liquefy those mixed gases, you really have to purify the carbon dioxide. So you take that carbon dioxide from 4 to 10% concentration, you can strip it out of the mixed gases to make it pure, and then you can take it and compress it and then store it subsurface, whether it's you know, for some sort of enhanced oil production in some cases, which is traditionally what it was used for, or it's simply to store it to prevent the impact on the climate. So, you know, that's a bit of a lengthy answer, but the overall answer is getting carbon dioxide out of the air and into the ground. How's that? That's perfect. And if we look at the R&D behind the technology, can you talk through that? Because this isn't a little SaaS tool or a widget that goes on a website, you know, looking through the diagrams on the website. This looks like some pretty heavy and some pretty serious technology. So can you talk us through the development of this technology? You bet. So I started by talking about my background in the traditional energy space, and, and a lot of that's gas processing. So the challenge, of course, here is also gas processing, but it's a different type of gas processing. In this case, you're trying to take a product that is of no value to anybody. It's not unless you're using it for something which is very, you know, on a proportional level, it's not very useful. And so, so no value and you're trying to put it underground. Well, if that's the case, then you need to have as low a cost solution as possible. So really in the evolution of post-combustion carbon capture, first you needed a reason to do it. And second, you need the lowest cost technology to do it. And originally the reason was because carbon dioxide was used in the old days for enhancing oil production. So they started doing research on stripping CO2 out of mixed flue gases you know, probably 40 years ago, maybe a bit longer ago, using a technology that was really a gas processing technology from 100 years ago. Problem is the application of that old technology, it's way, way harder when you're doing this on a tailpipe. Lots of different reasons, but the tailpipe itself, you see water vapor, you see SOx and NOx emissions. These are poisonous emissions. You see particulates in some case. And, you know, I think the mixture really is a corrosive cost of stuff. But I think just as challengingly, it's also at atmospheric pressure. Now, when you're at atmospheric pressure, the ability to sort of extract that CO2 from the mixed gases is hard too. So basically, I'm trying to frame the challenge here, which is this is an old technology being used in a very difficult environment. And so to make it work in this difficult environment, it has to be very big, it has to be very tall. Like a stripper tower, a tower that contacts the CO2 is about 140 feet tall. The diameter is not that big but it is quite tall and it requires fans to blow that exhaust gas around, it requires filters, it requires heat management. And then once you've got that CO2, you need to handle it separately through its own compression and a, and a well to put it down. So if you guys uh, spend a lot of time on my webpage, you'll know that there is a diagram that shows how this works, but basically you take the exhaust gas, you blow it into the bottom of a tower, and in that tower is a solvent that binds selectively to carbon dioxide. By the time the exhaust gas gets to the top of the tower, there's almost no carbon dioxide left in the exhaust gas. So all the other gases just go to the atmosphere, not harming anybody. 
and the solvent that was in the tower becomes saturated and it gets pulled out into a different part of the process where it can be boiled where you free off the CO2 and that CO2 is then injected into the ground. So yeah, it's big, it's expensive. And in order to compel people to invest in carbon capture, you need things that are essentially at price on carbon. And that's what the government has generally been responsible for. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. So listening to that, you know, my one big takeaway is that you're very good at communicating. You're a very effective communicator and you're very good at, you know, explaining complex technology in easy to understand terms. Have you always had that skill or did that take you time to really master that story and be able to communicate complex ideas in a simple way? Well, thank you for saying so. You're too kind. I'd say that I could blame it on my first job, which was teaching sailing to kids, (laughs) which is, which, you know, you think about teaching kids anything is tricky. Teaching them something technical, you have to figure out how to address the fact that people learn verbally in some cases or visually. And hopefully I'm getting that across here in this situation, but it's not, uh, like I said, it's not easy. And uh, I'm happy to dive in further if you have any, any confusion at all. Yeah, I think it makes sense, generally speaking. I'm sure there's like layers to understanding it, but at a high level, I, I think I get it. I also wanted to ask you about the Glacier gas plant. So I was watching a video that I think had just come out a couple of days ago and it's awesome. It's beautiful. It looks cool. Talk to us about that. What is the Glacier Gas Plant? You bet. So the Glacier Gas Plant is a gas plant in northwest Alberta, which is uh, the province that Calgary uh, is located in Canada. For those of you who are American or non-Canadian, this is a, a gas plant that essentially it's required to take raw gas that's produced from a deep source, deep natural gas source, and to scrub it, clean it up so that it's, it can be sold into the network of pipes that distribute that natural gas. And that gas gets burnt, of course, in people's furnaces to keep you warm in the winter and to create power. So that gas plant is probably worth about $800 million. And it's operated, owned and operated by Advantage Energy, which is also, which is my other day job. And so the gas plant itself is big enough at 400 million cubic feet per day. That produces enough natural gas to heat the homes of every upper, which is four and a half million people. So it's actually in and of itself a very, it's an incredible asset. The ability to heat and affect, you know, to deliver cheap, reliable, low carbon energy to that many people is quite a privilege. It's not always thought of that way because it's part of the traditional energy mix, but an incredible asset. And the fact that we control it through advantage allowed us to create this separate company, Entropy, and basically prove the technology because using post-combustion carbon capture on the combustion of natural gas has never been done commercially until our project. So having both ends of the equation where we have the plant, we have the emissions, and then we have the entropy technology on the other side. If we didn't have that all put together, it would have taken us a lot longer and been much more difficult. Super fascinating. How does that feel to like walk around that plant? You know, for you being the founder here, being the leader of the company, is that a very special feeling just to see it out in the real world like that? Yeah, for sure. So if you think about the the video, that video is taken with a drone, obviously, or flying around the plant. To see the scale and this crystal clear video of that massive contactor tower where you're scrubbing CO2 and the fact that it's the first one that's ever been built in a commercial setting, 
incredibly rewarding, especially because it's working really well and, and because the cost structure is essentially where we thought it would be. So hugely proud. You know, a better example though is our chief technology officer is Rick Bauer. Rick is close to 70, he's right around 70 years old. Uh, he's been in the gas processing engineering space for 45 years, maybe a bit more. And for him to see that as the culmination of his career and the legacy that he can tell his kids about, his grandkids about, he just said essential is not a spine to see it. And of course, when it comes to that type of project, that type of infrastructure, you know, the guys that do the hard design work, it's not, of course, not me doing the hard design work, the R&D, it's, it's the whole team. Rick's comment really captured the way the whole team feels about it, which is we've done something that no one's ever been able to accomplish before on a commercial scale, and we can do this all over the place. And it's really exciting to be a part of it. And on the journey to achieving that, were there any near-death experiences? You know, did you ever have any of those moments where it just felt like, all right, this isn't going to happen, or maybe we should do something else? Did any moments like that ever happen? Yeah, I wouldn't say that we had any near-death experiences. We've had lots of different sort of threats to the business. Things that if they didn't go well, would have been very, very difficult for the business to succeed the way that we wanted to succeed. So when we talk about the goals for the business, it's not to be able to go out there and deliver one niche project or become a success for the founders. The goal is for this to be a global technology and to be a meaningful player on a global level. That's the reason we partner with Brookfield Global Transition Fund. So to do this on a global level requires something special to make it defensively better, a moat, right? And there were certain times where we were concerned we wouldn't be able to buy the technology, for example, that had been developed previously, or people that were really critical members of the team or were going to be critical members of the team that we needed to partner with. So this partnerships with R&D at the University of Regina, and these are professors and PhDs that have been working on this for the last three decades. Partnerships with our chief technology officer, our chief engineer, which I talked about with Bauer, Brent Allardyce, partnerships with some of the people that joined the team. Without all these people, the company could never achieve what we feel like we need to achieve, or, or we would never do it as well as we need to do it. So I'd say that most of the big kind of risks and a lot, a lot of the lost sleep came from the time required and the agreements that are required to make sure you've got all the right people together, working on the same team and all with the aligned goals. So that, that's been important. I mean, along the way, you can imagine like four years ago, hitching to the board of directors of Advantage, where really this company was born from, that we want to create a business that no one's ever heard of to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and put it on the ground, and we'd be paid in the form of carbon credits. That does not resonate with traditional executives, and it certainly didn't that long ago. Nowadays, it's much more common to have an understanding of that, but there were times where it would have been sort of hard to do this with the full team and the full support of the organization. And I can say with great pride that, you know, every one of those tough discussions that had to happen did happen. And uh, I think people that are a member of the team, including our board of directors, you know, and the researchers of R and the, uh, the engineering team, we've all had the same vision since the get-go and the challenge is just to, to navigate this brand new industry. Now, I want to ask a little bit as well about money and, and funding. So as I mentioned there in the intro, it was 300 million raised so far. You know, typically we're interviewing early stage startups or growth stage startups where they follow the more traditional path of you know, pre-seed, then a seed, then a series A, et cetera, et cetera. But yours is very different. I believe it was a PE from the back to you. Is that correct? Yeah, I'd say even before that, and I, I talked a little bit about Advantage Energy having spun this out. 
So we were quite fortunate that we had this appetite to invest a little bit of cash flow out of Advantage Energy into the project. But without a government grant to get us sort of supercharged a bit at the outset three years ago, we would have been moving more slowly and would have struggled with some of that capitalization that early, you might've called Series A. But really, in reality, Series A for us came out of Vantage and the government. Mm. That's the first time I've referred to it as Series A, but you get the point. And the good news is, is that this isn't my first startup and that this is a business that we understand quite well, at least in theory, it's a very inverted version of traditional energy production. But because of that history, going from the seed financing to build the first project to the main financing through private equity was a single step. We didn't have to worry about a very complicated cap table, for example, with a whole bunch of series that maybe some of them were up, some of them were down. This, we were lucky to be able to avoid that. I think that the size and scale and the amount of people we put together, the capacity those people brought to the table meant that we weren't taking a lot of risks so much as we just had to overcome a whole bunch of really challenging hurdles. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And from my understanding of the Canadian, I guess we could say tech ecosystem, a lot of companies go public. That's the thing that you do there. It seems like it's much more common to go public in Canada than it is in the United States. I've had a number of friends who took companies public there. Is that the you know, medium term or maybe short term plan at some point to do an IPO in Canada or long term? What's the, the vision for you know, future fundraising needs? Yeah, I'd say that that's the plan. We do intend IPO. It's probably a couple of years out. We've got a growth plan that suggests that our EBITDA should be at a level where an IPO in two years will get us towards our our scale, the scale that we want to achieve for the IPO and, of course, the, the ownership structure behind it. So I think IPO, it's probably more common in Canada if that is, I mean, Frank, I hadn't heard that, that difference before, but it makes sense because really we have a, a shallower capital pool here in Canada. There's lots of cross-border investment for American companies, but we do have a thinner capital pool and we have a, a lower appetite for entrepreneurialism. In Canada, I'd say, or perhaps a shallower pool of that type of behavior. And in fact, it's been recognized by many. So we, there's this new fund that our government, our federal government just started called the Canada Growth Fund. And that fund was started, it's a $15 million fund, that's billion dollar fund. And the intent of the fund is to create more liquidity for growth style companies, i.e. not venture capital level, not mature company or infrastructure style, but the gap. And that gap in Canada is real and it's because few or fewer people and fewer funds are willing to make that investment when the company's still sort of pre-revenue, but post-risk. All that said, for us in Canada, the IPO makes lots of sense. Uh, I'd say there's probably a, a reasonable chance we actually IPO this in the States instead though, uh, anyways. And frankly, Brookfield is a fabulous partner. They, through their global transition fund, which is been billion as well, personally, there's always a chance that Brookfield sees other ways to finance this separately. But I think that the most likely outcome is for us to become public in call it a couple of years and keep going. Yeah, I think how my friends describe it, and this was a couple of years back, so I may get some of the details wrong, but they said it was like junior mining companies that the TSX had launched some way to help them go public faster. And then technology startups there were struggling to raise growth stage capital. So then all of a sudden, a bunch of technology companies started to go public on the TSXV. And then that led to a bunch of technology companies being publicly traded in Canada. But some of those details could have been skewed over the last couple of years of sitting in my brain. Yeah, you're not wrong. That sounds pretty right. And, you know, typically uh, you might see companies go public on the TSXB with, you know, 10 or 20 million bucks of liquidity. So, you know, it's not a bad way to do it for sure. I think that the actual ability to raise larger amounts for that growth phase is where the, the gap happens. 
makes a lot of sense. Now, if you reflect on your journey so far, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give yourself if you were just starting this company again today? That's a great question. <laughs> I mean, there's a few things. I'd say one of the most important things is that in the clean tech space, what you're really talking about is a business model for energy, energy transition, carbon negativity, renewables, all sorts of stuff that that basically on their own. And these things didn't organically rise to the top of the capital priorities of investors. The space has risen to the top of people's minds because of policy and because of the desire to do something better. And typically, it's tough to be able to predict the difference between something that you want to do being profitable versus something that is profitable, so you want to do it. And there's an important way to differentiate those two things. So I think carbon capture is really particularly subject to that differentiation. Carbon capture does not produce a product of any value. When I say that, when I say product, product that we consumed, redeployed, reused. I mean, there's some utilization, like I said, it's rounding error in the big picture of what needs to happen globally. And so if there was no government policy, carbon capture would be at best a novelty, right? We need that government policy to create the value of a ton of negative carbon. So what we're talking about here is a derivative revenue stream, not the actual commodity itself. There's no intrinsic value of the commodity, broadly speaking. So with that, I frame it that way because you know, you think about what did you learn? What have I learned along the way? Well, what I'd say is that the government works more slowly than than you think. So that's probably that's probably the number one thing. I think yeah, a year ago, when we had raised money with Brookfield, we came out of the shoot with lots and lots of growth projects that were essentially ready to go. And in the ensuing six months, we watched government policy become quite muddled and improved in the states. And it got worse in Canada. And even in the States where it's improved, there's still some degree of uncertainty around timing for disposal wells, for example. So, and disposal wells, you can't actually have a carbon capture storage project until you have a disposal well. So all that to say, the world is ready to go out there and build these projects and start sort of capturing and sequestering or storing carbon. Uh, the governments are trying to figure out which way to make sure that the system is set up as best it can be to, to actually allow this to happen or to incent this to happen. We're ready to go, but the speed that we work at in private industry is just a little different than the way the public works and that the government works. So I would say detune, I would tell myself to detune my, my expectations on how quickly we can uh, expect the government to uh, come with new policy. And that's probably number one. Nice. That's useful. Yeah. Now, final question here. Let's zoom out into the future. And yeah, we don't have to talk about like the fundraising IPO. We covered that. But let's talk about the future that you're building. So three to five years from today, what do you want the company to look like? How many projects like the one we talked about earlier do you want to have? What are some of those ambitions and goals? Yeah. So three to five years, we actually have a three-year plan, which includes trying to IPO two years out. I think realistically, because we are still seeing the industry change so quickly, there's so much policy change happening. I think realistically, we should have at least two mid-sized projects. Those would be kind of $100 million plus each on stream within the next two years or thereabouts. We should have at least two more post-FID. And I think we'll probably see projects not just in Canada and the United States, but also in Australasia, Middle East, and hopefully Europe. 
hoping to see Asia get up to speed as well on creating a carbon market that incents investment in carbon capture. All that to say, this is something that we can do everywhere in the world because everywhere in the world, they are burning carbon-based fuels. And we've got the technology to do it. I think most engineering companies could find a way to make this possible. A much smaller subset of companies can do it at a cost that is economic. But certainly speaking on behalf of Entropy, we can do post-combustion carbon capture at a cost that is well under the current price of carbon. And we can do this all over the world. And uh, so, you know, I think about that the midterm goal of IPO is one thing. I think the bigger goal, the longer term goal is about trying to make sure that we have projects all over the world at a global scale where we start to see a reduction in carbon emissions in the atmosphere. And that's accomplishing our goals for climate change. Amazing. I love it. All right, Mike, we're up on time, so we're going to have to wrap. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? Well, we have a pretty thorough webpage, entropyinc.com. Because it's owned, because Entropy is owned by a publicly traded company, Entropy has a very strong disclosure record. So pretty much every press release that we put out goes on that webpage. We have a very thorough slide deck. At the video that you're referring to where we fly around the gas plants and, and the carbon capture plant. And we keep adding new stuff every week or every, at least every month. Uh, you should be able to see it going on there. And, and by the way, we're also posting on LinkedIn and, and uh, on a pretty regular basis, as well as Twitter from time to time. Amazing. I'll make sure to link to that video. It's, it's really cool. And I think it'll help people listening you know, really comprehend what you're doing and the scale of everything that you're doing. So I'll make sure to link to that. Awesome. All right, Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to join us, talk about what you're building and, and share some of those valuable lessons that you've learned along the way. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I know the audience is going to as well. So thanks so much for taking the time on a Friday to speak with me. My pleasure. Looking forward to uh, staying in touch. All the best there. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.